Our first scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 2 to 6. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say on that day, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Make known his deeds among the nations. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout, al shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion, for great in your minds midst is the Holy One of Israel, the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Continuing in the theme of Thanksgiving, which the Isaiah passage introduces for us from Scripture, is a brief reading from Luke's Gospel as we go from the end of chapter 20 in Luke into the very beginning of chapter 21. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers they will receive the greater common condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, because all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts this morning on this your reassuring and troubling word be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like to invite you to take a quick little literary journey with me with this widow today. And before we do, let's just establish that in Scripture, in ancient times, if not today, the fact is widows, or widowers, suffer. Suffer grief. In that time, in the first century, they were completely vulnerable widows, having no husband with whom, well, to, to support her or to give her social standing or respect. Um, they were uh, a very vulnerable people in society. This widow, like every widow, certainly in the first century, had every reason to be focused on herself and self-protection and building up whatever meager resources she had to face whatever each day, whatever challenges each day might have to bring. And there are two sayings in this journey this widow takes this morning, this widow who suffers like we all do. The first thing that Jesus says at the very end of chapter 20 is beware of the scribes, these religious professionals who wear long robes, 
like to say long prayers, not sermons. He doesn't mention sermons. Um, they devour widows' houses. And then the second saying from the first part of chapter 20, just a few verses later, is, but this widow, out of her poverty, has given all that she has to live on. The first part of this journey, in the hearing of many people, Jesus says to his disciples, I love how Luke puts that, it's like a children's sermon. I'm talking to the children, but I'm really talking to the adults, right? So I sort of say it loudly, uh, and that's what Jesus does. He's talking to the disciples, but he knows he's got a, an audience. He's truly trying to give them the message. And he says, beware of those scribes who, for the sake of appearance, do all these loud, crazy things that draw attention to themselves. And then Luke reports, Jesus looked up and saw. There gathered in the temple probably the court of women, one of the main courts of the temple complex, Luke reports that Jesus looked up and saw, which this phrase, he looked up and saw, shifts our attention from this sort of speech Jesus is giving now to this scene that he is observing. And we see all these wealthy people coming by to make their regular donations to the religious organization to which they belong, the temple. We move from one vignette to the next this morning in Luke. And if we're reading and listening closely, we can see that the hero is, is of course, the widow. And it moves from widows generally to a very specific widow. And Luke, of all the gospel writers, as he tells the story about what Jesus says and does, it, Luke has a very special place in his heart for widows. We know that. In fact, we just a couple of weeks ago looked at the persistent widow who kept coming to the unjust judge. And there are other widows, the widow of Nain and the widow of Zarephath. All these stories in Luke about widows and their, their example for us of faith, even in the face of harsh life circumstances. Luke loves to make widows heroes. So why is this woman a hero today for us? Because she's pious? Because she loves God? Because she's generous? even in spite of her vulnerability, her victimization perhaps by the temple economic system or the more broad uh, inequities in society in which vulnerable people are the ones who suffer the most when there's a change in economic policy. It's not us that, you know, maybe our investments are a little bit better, they're a little bit worse, our interest rates go up a little bit on our credit cards, but the people at the bottom of the so-called food chain are the ones who suffer just like it was back in those days. Luke contrasts, quite obviously, people with resources here and this widow. And he does it three times, if you read it carefully, this brief passage today. And the first contrast is when he introduces the disciples, uh, to the disciples, um, this notion of uh, generosity from two different sources. He describes, according to Luke, uh, Luke describes what happens as these people line up and kind of shuffle past these giant offering uh, pots. They were called shofar chests. They were shaped like a shofar. Anybody know what a shofar is? A sh What's that? A big horn, exactly. My name could be Greg Shofar, exactly, right? Big shofar, and it had a big, like a tuba, and people would come in and drop 
their offerings into that, into that horn, in that shofar-shaped pot. And everybody get it, does the same action of giving, of making an offering. But then we get the comparison in the second component of our text today, in which Jesus says, even those who gave a respectable chunk of change, perhaps they even gave stock, right? Uh, they did it and it made a loud noise or it made a, you know, kind of a, they did it in a showy kind of way and they wore long robes. They were just, it's just like the scribes who love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. Uh, he contrasts those people with this poor woman who gives these two little lepta. A lepton was a small copper coin that was worth basically nothing, much like our pennies today. I used to collect pennies as a kid. I have all these rolls of pennies in my house. If I put them all together and sort of added them up, and got, I'd probably get like $12 for all that work as a child. Pennies are, well, there's a strong movement to get rid of them, right? They're really worth nothing. And that's what this woman gave, these two little lepta, these two small copper coins. And then finally, in the third sort of component of this text this morning, Jesus explains, Luke has Jesus explain to us what it all means. He says this woman gave more than all those people who gave so much because she gave everything she had while they simply gave out of their abundance in a way that was never really going to impact them one way or the other in the same kind of way that it impacts her, certainly. Widows suffer like we all suffer like Jesus suffered in his life. That's really an important piece of this story. This is a woman who had every reason not to give anything, let alone all that she had, let alone both of those copper coins. A very successful, very wealthy uh, woman rang her minister uh, back when we, you could ring people on the telephone uh, at two in the morning. This does happen periodically. Uh, and she said, Pastor, I've got to tell you, the stock market's going crazy. I lost everything I had yesterday. I can't believe it. All of my investments, they're gone. The groggy, slowly awakening pastor tried to reassure this woman who was a faithful member of the church. He said, I'm so sorry. I know this must be a difficult time for you. But what bothers me most, the woman went on, is that the $2 million I had pledged to our church building fund, that's gone too. Don't stress yourself over it, the pastor said. God will take care of everything. God is going to take care of you, and God will provide us a way to build that new wing on our church. And the once wealthy woman thanked the pastor, felt better, and soon fell fast asleep. The pastor, however didn't get another wink that night. So let's just talk about what this text is really about this morning. It's about giving. It's about giving financially. It's one of the most important themes in scripture, in the Christian religion, giving. One of the favorite things most ministers, preachers like to tell you is that in scripture you will find references to money nine times more than you'll find references to prayer. Right? Because money's about what really matters to us. It gets right to the heart of the matter, as Don Henley once sang. We are funny about money. That's why Jesus talks about it so much. It makes us all a little uncomfortable, especially Presbyterians. 
And I love to tell the story of the man who called the church office one day and asked, shockingly, the office administrator, if he could speak to the head hog at the trough. The administrator said, who? And then she gathered herself and sort of thought about her beloved pastor and said, sir, if you mean our pastor, you will have to treat him with a little more respect than calling him the head hog at the trough. You should call him the reverend or pastor. After all, he's earned it. But certainly you can't call him the head hog at the trough. And the man said, oh, I'm sorry, I understand. I was calling because I have the $10,000 that I want to give to some church and I was thinking about donating to yours. And she said, hold on a minute. I think the big pig just walked through the door. I don't know if Denise would do that, our administrator here in our church, but if she wanted to, she could. For 10000 bucks. you can call me whatever you want. We do change our tune when money is involved, don't we? And that's why this passage of Scripture has such an enduring power. It has throughout 2,000 years. Because we do play favorites when it comes to money. We like to be played as a favorite if we have any, and if we don't, we tend to treat people who have it as if they were the pillars not only of the church or the synagogue, but society as well. For some reason, we have to be sort of think, you know, people with more of it, they've, they've figured this thing out, this game of life. You know, there are a lot of resources in this area, if you haven't noticed. I certainly have, because it's not the world I grew up in by any means. Uh, so a little story from my life journey. I have an extremely close friend, an athlete friend, we were the shortstop in the second baseman. We both were the guards on our basketball team. He was a wide receiver for me, um, really good athlete, um, and a very, very competitive person. I mean, we would play ping pong matches as teenagers well into the night until we finally, somebody just finally gave up and let the other person win. About 15 years ago, this guy told me, and this is 15 years ago, I think I'm worth $37 million, he said. This is a kid whose father was a railroad, railroad worker. Um, we never saw his dad at any of our sporting events. He was working or he was sleeping. That's this guy. Um, my friend, sort of luckily, because he can't hammer a nail, went into construction and then banking and then development, and that's what he does. And he's really good at it, apparently. But I've noticed when I'm around him that people tend to treat him a little bit differently than they treat me. It wasn't like that when we were younger. I don't know, you know. And he, I've noticed, has gotten used to kind of giving orders. People don't really contradict him very much. And why? Because one decision from this guy can change someone's life. It does make you sort of, when you're around people like that, it's, you're aware of that. Especially when you're, when you head a not-for-profit, not for you know. I mean, you know, it wouldn't even bother him to change my life. In fact, he helped supported me through seminary. Uh, in a way that was really moving to me. So I and a few of our close old friends, we've decided to make sure this guy never forgets where he came from. Sarcasm was our weapon in trade back in those days, and it still is today, because he needs to be reminded. You know, he, and actually, he's one of the most humble people you'll ever know. His name is Steve. If you looked at the way he dressed, you'd never know he has any money, let alone all that kind of money. Uh, but it is true that he has gotten used to living a certain kind of life, um, where a life that doesn't make any sense to most of us. He has lots of resources, lots of things to protect, lots of defenses, um, and he's like the rest of us. Our resources 
tend to define us. They start to sort of define who we are if we don't watch it. We can all, in that sense, use a little humility, just like he can. A man by the name of Jerry sent a check for $10,000 to his alma mater. The alumni office was shocked because like they would if they were looking at my records, they would realize that Jerry had never given very much to the school in the past. So in an attached note, Jerry attributed his gift to the effectiveness of the letter he had received. He'd received hundreds of letters over the years since he graduated, but this letter made all the difference and it sparked in him this sense of generosity. And the fundraiser searched their files and they found a copy of the letter in question, the one that had gone out to Jerry. And to the fundraiser's surprise, he discovered that it was just one of those boilerplate form letters that alumni offices send out. The only difference was in this uh, letter, there had been a mistake in the, in the university's database, and instead of saying, Dear Jerry, the letter simply read, Dear Jerk. <laughs> and that got the response that they'd been looking for. Something that made Jerry sort of assess himself, I guess, take a look at who he really is, and out came the checkbook. The widow's might. She put in all she had. She did away with her defenses. She took a risk. You know, we give, we, we encourage you and myself, Sarah and me, to give in proportion to our income. That's an important tool in Christian giving because it makes us confront the truth. But it's not just throw away money or any extra money. Let's face whatever percentage it really is of who we are financially as we give back to God and God's church. But really, we don't give in proportion to our income. We give in, in direct proportion to our trust in God. That's what we do, right? This woman trusted completely. Now, she didn't have much choice in the matter, but she did have two copper coins that to her were precious because it was all she had to live on. Not to build an extra wing on the house or renovate the kitchen or go on a vacation or you know, stock a little bit more away for retirement or even to buy uh, their 16-year-old daughter who somehow thinks she should be getting a new car when she gets her driver's license. Oh, that's, sorry, that's me. Uh, not to do any of that, but simply to live on, to buy bread for later that day. She gave in direct proportion to her trust in God, and she gave... I don't like the word sacrificially. She took a risk. And that's what we're called to do, people of God, based on our sense of gratitude for the way that God has kept God's promises to us in the past. If we're truly grateful, if we understand that we didn't earn whatever matters most in our lives, those were gifts, then we believe and trust that God's going to keep God's promises again tomorrow and the next day after that. There's a financial counselor by the name of Ron Blue, which is a kind of a funny name for a financial counselor, or any kind of counselor, as a matter of fact, Ron Blue, who wrote that if all Christians in the United States were reduced to a welfare income, and they all tithed on that amount, meaning 10% before taxes, the Christian church across this country would double its receipts. If we all were making what? 60,000 bucks a year, and we did a 10% on that. If all of us did the exact same thing, we'd double our income and be able to do that, double what we do now in church. 
So, this widow had to overcome some tough feelings to give what she did. She probably had some resentments. She certainly had grief in her life, some sadness, some struggle. And she gave joyfully and gratefully, and it is a mystery how she was able to bring herself to do that. But like so many mysteries that make the world amazing, we're grateful for her, her inspiration, her example, and her challenge to us. Because we can get what she has. We can, like in, when Harry met Sally, I'll have whatever she's having, if you know what I'm talking about. In this case, there's this amazing sense of fulfillment that comes when we keep increasing that risk in what we give. In the coming year, Sarah and I, as we do every year, and sometimes the conversations about this are easier than others, we're going to increase our pledge as this congregation comes home to today's church as we move into a new year and a very new and still uncertain future. There's so much to be thankful for. So many of you online here in the sanctuary, so many new folks coming into this church family who already inspired and shaped us. Uh, we're grateful, and uh, we trust there'll be so much more to be grateful for as we go forward together. May God bless each and every one of us as with that widow, we take that journey into our future. Amen.